please join with me as I read from God's Word this morning in Colossians 3, 1 through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue stepping verse by verse through this letter. It's great to be back with everyone. And uh, last week, Bruce Kendrick uh, focused our attention on cultural Christianity. And he left us with a challenge at the end of his sermon. I think he asked us to become aware. His last challenge was he wanted to challenge us to become aware and to do an audit of our heart and mind. Where do we spend our time? Maybe where we spend our money. How does media or technology influence us? How does our bank account balance influence or determine our peace? He asked if hurry defined our pace, what relationships and routine impacts us. So before we jump off into this week's text, uh, in light of those challenges combined with this week's text, I thought I would start with the very middle question, how does media or technology influence you? And Bruce shared openly about, uh, you know, someone who had uh, called him out, right, during a a meeting that they were in and and had asked graciously about rescheduling. But media and technology can influence us in many ways. And there's an author that I would recommend to you. His name is Tony Rinke. And Tony, he, he, he writes and is on staff at Desiring God. John Piper's ministry. He's written two books that might be of value, especially for you parents. One of those books is 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. I've read that book. I've found that it's a very, very good book. I really enjoyed that book. His newest book that I have not completed reading yet, but I do have a copy of and intend to read, is called called God, Technology, and the Christian Life. 
Now, I commend Tony to you. I've read some of his other books, but one of the reasons I would commend Tony to you on this topic is because Tony is not anti-technology. Tony loves technology. Tony talks about the productivity with which his iPhone has allowed him to have through his ministry and how it has changed him. So it's not just a slam over the head, you know, don't use any phones, don't have a TV, don't, don't, don't. It's more in the grounds of how do I, how can I glorify God in the midst of having access to this technology? And so... The phone and the technology allows access to things that were once outside of even conception, let alone acceptable. And it must be managed. But it's not just for kids. It's for adults too. Moms and dads. Pinterest. Twitter, news feeds, games. We could sit here and go on for a while about the infiltration that technology can have into our lives. Now, as we continue forward, I'm going to give a backdrop to today's lesson before we delve into the text. I've got a slightly different kind of approach this morning, so you just have to hang with me. Another book. There are several books referenced in here this morning, and uh, so you just have to bear with that. Written by a guy who's a pastor at Christ Fellowship Church in Kansas City. His name's Daryl Wingard. He wrote a book. I read it several years ago. And the title of the book is Delivered by Desire. The Encouraging Truth About Christians and Sexual Purity. This book deals head-on with the idea of sexual purity. And obviously this book, the context of it, is written to men. Because it's well known that that's an area of struggle for many. However... It's also encouraged to be read by women, and it's encouraged to be read in the context of not just sexual sin, but also other sins. However, the context was tied directly with our passage this week. He has a tremendously helpful analogy, I believe. He uses a word, it's a made-up word, it's called a wanter. Like want, like I want something. But he says that in this image, everyone has a wanter. And he uses an example of a moth. You turn on the light, the moth wants to go to the light. But if you go into a dark room and you turn on a light and there's a cockroach, the cockroach will flee the light. They want the darkness. His analogy is, so too we have a wanter. It's that thing deep down in the deepest part of us, the part that produces those most meaningful desires. 
This is a measure of what the Bible refers to as our heart. It's who we really are. The spiritual center of our being. Do we want to pursue a pleasure or a sin? And if so, it can progress such that we want to be clothed in darkness, which ultimately can lead to numbness and indifference. And then ultimately we want it to go on in secret. Do we avoid the light? It can take many forms. And darkness doesn't have to be this idea of complete absence of light. But we can also analogous to veiled in secrecy. An example, maybe more pertinent to our young people. Sometimes we can so want acceptance with friends that when we are outside of mom and dad's presence, we can be led to pursue things that we know might not bring honor to mom and dad's wishes. And it's very clear. The scriptures say we are to obey our parents. So the question is, to start today's journey before we get into scripture, do I have something that I would like to remain in the darkness? How much time am I spending Where am I spending it? And what thoughts am I harboring? 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. John 3.19-20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now... If we come to know Jesus Christ, we get a new wanter. We're born again. And we want to pursue him and be in his light. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This week's verses start with the backdrop of last week's why I had the first four verses read. The ESV, NIV, and Holman Christian all start with, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The New American Standard says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Whichever way it is translated, there is no confusion. Consider as dead or put to death is strong language. The word serious is defined as demanding careful consideration or application. The second definition, acting or speaking sincerely and in earnest rather than in a joking or half-hearted manner. And my first point in your outline is that we should consider this a serious 
command. One that we should consider carefully for application. And I say that because of the word therefore. This word refers back to the previous four verses. And those first or those four verses started with an if statement. If then you have been raised with Christ, and if we have died to self and are hidden in Christ, when Christ who is your life appears, then this command continues, put to death therefore. So Paul is speaking to Christians. Is this me? Is this you? Here Paul is linking doctrine and practice. He is not giving us an option. It is clear, putting sin to death is a requirement for the Christian life. Now, I'm kind of settling in here, and I better, I better mark my time, or we could be here till 2. All right. <clears throat> Since believers share in Christ's death and resurrection, we have lives hidden with him, and will one day be revealed in glory with him. We must kill sin. The famous Puritan John Owen was, has a well-known statement that is quoted often from the book Mortification of Sin. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And this came from Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul also deals with this in Romans 6, 11 through 13. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now, a few considerations here in light of the previous verses that we discussed two weeks ago. In two weeks ago, we were talking about these risks of asceticism that Paul was calling out and self-abasement. Paul was telling them not to fall victim, victim to this. And depending on the interpretation of this verse and the idea of mortification of the body, some people have taken this as far as dismemberment. And they're mistaking the physical body for evil as opposed to the sin that the body commits as the evil. And the body should be brought under control of the Holy Spirit so as to be controlled toward what is good. G.K. Beale suggests that the best and simplest solution to any confusion on the consider dead or put to death is to look down in verse 8 at the exact parallelism where he says, lay aside. And then he has a list of five sins. And so you have two cases here where there's an imperative followed by five sins. So he links these together and says, so to put to death your earthly members is figurative for lay aside sins. Now there's all kinds of lists in scripture. Romans 1, 29 through 31. 1 Corinthians 5, 11, Chapter 6, verse 9. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5. We can go through those lists. I encourage you to find those lists. Sometimes it's just a fun study to do lists. Just this week, we're talking about what we're going to put off. Next week, we're going to talk about what we should put on. So I don't plan to cover any of those other lists. We're going to focus this week here. This is not an exhaustive list for sure. But there is a progression contained in it. I notice these things when being the engineering mind that I am. 
you see that the outcome, the act of sexual immorality and impurity and passion, you flow all the way back. You're trying to get to the root cause, right? Well, where does this initiate? And you go all the way back to this idea of covetousness, which is idolatry or self-rule. Um, when we start trying to get to the root cause of sin, we start trying to get to the root of the problem, I think James is helpful. James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The text says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The word here in the Greek for sexual immorality is porneia, and it refers to sexual sin, and it is the same word that we get, the common word today that people hear about called pornography. But in the New Testament, its meaning is broad, and it includes any kind of immoral, physical relationship. The Bible defines the only acceptable relationship that should be operating in a physical nature as inside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. And since we are living in confusing times, I will restate it as one biological man and one biological woman, so as to be clear. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin, and being married does not eliminate the potential to sin because there are many ways that you can break the marriage vow, whether in reality or in the mind. Impurity, that is filthiness or moral uncleanness, and it goes beyond, this goes beyond the action to encompass evil thoughts, imagination, speech, intentions of the mind. So this can extend to the different categories that we talked about earlier, whether single or married. It includes thought life, eyes that wander, urges or desires that are not properly channeled. Passion and evil desire have similarity, and they include shameful emotion that leads to excess, and various Bible translations substitute the word lust here. Our society, which I would like to say is no different than the societies that have preceded us, preceded us, is characterized by this sin, sexual sin. Our society is very much upside down and crazed. When I say crazed, I mean inflamed to the extent of distraction with numb to, not thinking clearly, non-biblical, sinful distortions of what is to be proper. And unless you are going to live in a cave or under a rock, you will be dealing with this. And 
to make my point, choose your cave wisely because many caves have hieroglyphics in them that were written from the preceding societies that also indicate this craziness. Simple things like modesty in dress, respectfulness in speech are woefully absent today. But that's why as believers we are to swim upstream. We are called to be different because we are to have died to the old self. Now, I talked about how during Paul's time of writing, there were still these kinds of things that existed. But they didn't have publishing houses, photography, movies. But they did have the same sin. Much of what we see today could potentially even be more dangerous because it is produced content by man and it's not even real. I'm going to think about this for a second. Man has this unique ability to continually refine things more and more for our detriment. Let me give you an example. Sugar. Okay? Sugar. Refined sugar. High fructose corn syrup. Intensely sweet. If you look at the introduction of a variety of diseases, diabetes, and all kinds of infirmities that we are dealing with, you can go track into many native peoples the introduction of refined sugar. It's well documented. So if you think about sugar exists in a natural form, correct? But you got to beat it out of a cane. And then you get it. And so in the old times, to have a little bit of sugar was a delicacy, to have a little sweet. Think about drugs. So, it's called weed for a reason. Grows wild. So, someone chose and decided at some point to break that down and dry it out and smoke it. But we have continued to refine and refine and refine till now. What do you have? You have fentanyl that just a small drop can kill. Do you see how we will refine and refine and refine to our detriment? But we can do the same things with published content. Movies range from documentary to based on a true story to completely made up. We have to be very careful that we don't allow these kinds of things to enter in. And it's a danger. Another visual. If you're hungry and you have a hamburger right in front of you, but you knew that it had been smeared with E. coli, would you ingest the burger? I submit probably not. 
Because you know the consequences would be what? Intestinal issues, potentially sickness, maybe a hospital visit. Pornography is E. coli for your soul. Covetousness, which is idolatry. At first reading, we might not connect greed or covetousness with the aforementioned sins. But the root meaning of this word is more to have. And more to have for oneself leads to idolatry. Or idolizing something more than God himself. Whether money or fame or power or even someone Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. More to have. Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary, I'll read it, Often when sensuality loses its hold, materialism takes its place. In his opinion, this is why many middle-aged men who were once devoted to sensuality are now equally given to money. The sins have the same source. Such greed is the lowest form of idolatry, for nothing could be lower than putting our trust in a material thing and making that our God. The more to have sin of covetousness is so real. It could be a friend's husband's job. Someone else's kid's ability to. Another person's job. It could even be another person's ministry or the size of their church or the only anecdote for this is contentment. And Paul spoke of this in Philippians 4.11. Not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The one word in there is Paul says he had to learn it. That means it's probably not easy and it doesn't just happen by the snap of a finger. We have to learn contentment. It's an act of worship to be content with our Lord. And it also says with much and with little. Just because you have a lot doesn't mean you're going to be content. As a matter of fact, it sometimes works just the opposite. That's a whole nother lesson. I sat under that teaching when I was about 22 years old or 23 in Houston, Texas. And the Sunday school teacher that delivered that message, I sat there secretly underneath my breath thinking... What an idiot. No way. If I could just ever make this much money, I would never have any more. I mean, I would be completely at peace. And he was proved right. And I was proved wrong. We know these things are serious and should be taken serious because Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
God's wrath is the equal and opposite reaction to ungodliness and sin. As gracious and loving as God is, you think of all of his holiness. When his wrath is unleashed in the final judgment, it will be a 100% equal and opposite force to all unrighteousness. His holiness will expunge it. And it will be on all who are not in Christ. There is a serious consequence of not heeding the call to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The call to come and die to oneself and be hidden in Christ is the only chance we have of living in the resurrection power to overcome and put to death the sinful nature. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Those are past tense, once and were. Believer, sin and the desire to sin must be part of our past. And the active ongoing effort to kill sin must be ever present in our lives. We must make no room for the accommodation of the flesh. And it says we should now put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, anger is this deep smoldering below the surface, swelling resentment. And wrath is likened to fire and straw. It's sudden and flame, but it burns down rather quickly. Anger and wrath are closely related. And sometimes things kept just below the surface result in an outburst. Malice is this bent or desire to harm others, a viciousness of mind. Loving it when a misery falls on someone. Slander, this is the same word we derive blasphemy from when we talk about God. A believer's speech should not insult, disparage, or mar, or disparage others. And it says obscene talk from your mouth. Speech that is intended to be derogatory or hurtful or to wound someone could be translated abusive speech. Do not lie to one another. There is just not room for lying to one another in the household of God. And for a Christian, in any circumstance, really. And this should be characterized by speech and motive, motives, even in the little things. Now, I raised four kids. And I watched them come through middle school and high school. And believe me, I have seen firsthand malice and slander but it happens in adults too you have to be very careful but it's real but there's no place for it in the household of God we'd be authentic and honest and approach our fellow brothers and sisters and so I ask and I'm being authentic in our home groups and in my relationships allowing Myself to be honest with others and prayed for? And am I willing to be honest with others when they need encouragement or maybe even admonishment? It says, See, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off, lay aside. This term is stripped off the old clothes, ripped off the old clothes of the old man and put on the new clothes and closed in the new self. The old self is the pre-Christ condition. And when we come to Christ, we are born again. Think Adam and Eve. Remember in Adam and Eve in the garden? They sinned. And what did they do? They sowed for themselves fig leaves and attempted to cover themselves. But they still did what? Hid from God. 
Then God made coverings for them. God made coverings for them. You see, that's how we are in our efforts. We try to put these things on. But unless God closes in Jesus Christ, we're going to still be insufficient. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. This new self is being renewed in knowledge and the image of our creator. There is to be a continual progression towards Christ-likeness and continual renewal. A washing of the word. 2 Corinthians 4.16 We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This transformation that takes place, it's radical. It's a new birth, a new life. The old is gone. And we are putting sin to death. And it transforms all human relationships. Look in the text. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Paul is describing and contrasting a variety of people groups that are no longer to be considered distinct if we are in Christ. Racial barriers, religious barriers, cultural barriers, and social barriers are all being told They can be separated in Christ. But think about that. With the pagan idolatry and culture, if you brought all that into proximity without Christ and the putting off of sin, that would be a mess. It would be an absolute mess. But in Christ, we can live and operate as a family of believers centered around Jesus Christ. Looking back at this whole list in the context of the entire passage, we see the condition at the beginning is, are you in Christ? Then Paul charges, if so, we are to lay aside, consider ourselves dead to the old sinful ways that lead to sexual sin. We are to lay aside the sins that impact us relationally and so radically That Christ should be able to exist in community that tears down and destructs all earthly attempts to divide and wall us up. John 13, 35 says, Jesus Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples if we love one another. 1 John 2, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. So lastly, a final statement on sin. Jeremy Burridge is a pastor in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He pastors the church where my daughter went. And uh, we enjoyed going there when my daughter was at Alabama. We went to the football temple on Saturdays, and then we would go to God's temple on Sundays. Um... But Jeremy Burridge referenced a pastor friend of his, an older pastor that used to say this, 
Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you there longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. If we are in Christ, we are not to be able to remain in sin, and we must be serious about killing it. If you are in this room and you are able to remain in sin, then you must get serious about coming to Christ. Do you remember the definition of serious that I started off with? Demanding careful consideration or application, not in a half-hearted manner. And the reason I say this is because the warning is a very serious one on account of these. The wrath of God is coming. Let's pray.